to Health IQ for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Delano Brokamp III, Esquire, CFP. I don't know. We're just going big for the last episode. Uh, yeah, vote for year. me. I don't know. What is your middle name? Francis. Oh, that is, that is almost Call me Francis. That's my daughter's middle name. Oh, yeah? That's that was spelled my... slightly different, though, I think. And my yeah. mother in law's name. And it was my dad's. Francis. My dad's first name is Francis, although most people call him Frank or Butch. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Good good story. All right. <laughs> it's the last episode of the year, and that means it's the last mailbag of the year. The decade, even. So, we're bringing the big guns today with Motley Fools for a ton of your investing questions. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Andy, is it true we've never had you on the show before? It is true. This is, I am a rookie Oy. answers participant. How Save the best for the last I'm super year. excited. This, this is the highlight of my year, guys, right here. So. Wow, you had to wait so long yeah, I had to for wait. it, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Was it worth the wait? We'll it was definitely, out. yeah, it is to me. Hopefully it is to listeners as well. Uh, so a lot of our listeners are going to know you because you have been on Money and uh, Molly Full Money or Market Foolery and those other podcasts. But for those who aren't familiar, um, Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did did you come to find the Motley Fool? Um, I know you're a newbie here, so <laughs> it's a short story. I'm a newbie on the show. Uh, I've been around. Thanks for the that uh, nice introduction. I've been around the Motley Fool. Um, I was the employee number 19 hmm. back in 1996 with um, Tom and David, and um, actually not as an investor. I came as an investor. I, I worked in an investment firm uh, beforehand. Came to the Motley Fool, but I came and joined our business team and business analytics and our marketing and sales team. But then I transitioned back to what I love which is investing, and worked with Tom and Dave first on Stock Advisor, and then Rule Breakers, Hidden Gems, um, was asked, Tom asked me to lead up one of our dividend services, and then I just kind of joined over with Tom. Um, he asked me to step into the CIO role, which I, I did a few years ago, and uh, now we have a team of 20 to 30 analysts uh, yeah. working on um, dozens of our investing services, including Rural Retirement with Robert Brokamp, and uh, it's been great. It's just been a fantastic, it's been a great investing decade as yeah. we end the decade here. It's been a great investing decade after a really rough um, you know, end to the 2008 2009 period. So um, it's been an exciting 10 years here. One of my favorite pictures of Andy Cross is from way back in the day. I don't even know what office it is because it looks like it's a house. And it's in a small room, and there are like four people crammed into this teeny tiny room. And Andy is back to back. Like his desk is against the wall, and then against the other wall behind him is another desk. And it looks like you guys are so crammed into this room that. Two people could not like push back from their chair to stand up at the same time. That's how cramped it is. That's true. My boss actually faced the wall, and if he wanted to get out from us, uh, speak Wilson, and then um, Sheila McKeegan and I had our backs to yeah. each other, and and he, we would have to both move in to let Speak kind of get out from the cubby of which he was kind of like facing this wall, the poor guy. And Sheila and I, this is back in voicemail, which I don't even have a phone here at the office yeah. these days, but um, Sheila and I shared a voicemail machine. It was kind of funny because she was in sales and I used to uh, get these sales calls and I would have no idea and pass it on to Sheila. So. The early scrappy days. The early scrappy, scrappy days. Scrappy yeah, days. exactly. Yeah. Well, we're glad we finally got around to having, having you having on me. here. Thanks for having me. Um, so actually, the first question we're going to send to Bro, though. And it comes from Ronald. 
I was wondering, with all these companies offering commission-free trades, would you be willing to talk to the different fools in your company and see what they think are the pros and cons of the company they use to invest? I ask because my current brokerage company has recently made me mad by taking away features I used to have access to. All right, bro, did you do it? You just walked around the office and asked people? Well, so that's what I have to start with, by disappointing Ronald and saying I didn't do that. <laughs> but I note anecdotally that it's so many people use different brokerages. Yeah. There's not one that like is a particular favorite among those of the Motley Fool. But I can tell you what things to look for when you're choosing a brokerage. So first of all, you do start with cost. These days, most people are commission free, um, but not all. But and those free commissions are on stocks, but not necessarily on all the other investments. So you want to see what else you're interested in buying. Are you going to pay commissions on? Options? Are you going to pay commissions on bonds? Are you going to pay commissions on the mutual funds that you like? Because most brokerages offer thousands of funds, but some of them you have to pay. They don't even call a commission; they call a transaction fee, which can be as high as like seventy-five dollars every Whoa. time you pay. It. Yeah, Woof. So you want to make sure you want to think: What do I want to invest in? And then find a brokerage where it has the lowest fees for those. Also, you want to avoid any sort of annual account fees or anything like mm-hmm. that. The other thing to look at is what what else is being offered? Do they offer research? Do they offer particularly good tools? Do they offer access to a financial planner? Because many of them do. Once you have a certain level of assets with the brokerage or mutual fund company or whoever it is, you can call up a financial planner and either just ask questions or get a full financial plan. So you put all that together and then also look at often they're running sort of special sign up bonuses mm-hmm. and things like that. Now, Every financial publication and most websites do some sort of ranking, like every year, like the best brokerages. So check out Kiplinger's and Money and those folks. Here at the Motley Fool, we have the Ascent, and we also rank the best brokers for 2020. So go there and two, and it says like best broker for traders, best broker for an IRA, mm-hmm. and you'll get a good idea of what's out there and what sign-up bonuses are being offered. I'll tell you one thing I am becoming more attuned with is the access to international shares. So if there are any. Uh, Listeners out there who uh, are interested in buying international shares directly on the exchange, some brokers definitely offer those that service better than others do. Um, there's different cost structures on that. So when you do think about using a brokerage, if that's something that you are interested in doing, or you think you might be interested in doing, um, at least talk to explore that option with each of the brokers to see if they offer trading definitely on the or uh, exclusively on the international shares rather than just the domestic shares, too. All right, next question comes from Kristen. I have been a fan of The Motley Fool for years, but sadly, I've never taken action on anything I've heard or learned. I think it's because I'm not confident enough to risk any of my honey's hard-earned dollars. Although he's very smart, he came from a very poor household with a very distrustful relationship with money. We were totally caught in the market crash in California. The banks got our hard-earned money and our home of a lifetime that we should have been able to sell and make a lot of money. If I could, I would put our cash in a mattress and hope it is enough. However, I know that is not true or right. so how do I begin? Just what do I do to grow my money? I would love a step-by-step guide. I just don't have a clue and not a lot of cash flow. Kristen, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, recognizing the fact that you want to start investing and doing better than sticking your money in the mattress is a, is a great start. Um, and 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 don't criticize yourself and don't beat yourself up on that. There are a lot of people who who are recognizing this at different stages in their lifetime, especially those who may have lost during the Great Financial Crisis. Unfortunately, not enough investors came back into the markets during that time. And like we said, we saw um, these great returns over the last ten years. So, but it's not too late. So it's great to get started. Equity investing and stock investing over if you are thinking investing 
investing over the next 10, 15, 20 years of your, of your lifetime, equities are the way to go ultimately because that's going to get you the probably the highest returns. Uh, there will be volatility with that, but a great way to start, I think, first of all, we talked about brokerage accounts earlier, so you have to have a brokerage account if you are investing. Um, once you start you do have a brokerage account and you think about investing, I always think the best way to start is a very general index fund or an ETF. And those are those give you lots of diversification. It's a great way to start. So I would simply think about investing into a wide index fund like the S&P 500 through Vanguard, uh, the VOO, the VTI, or the services. Are, those are very um, widely owned ETFs offered by Vanguard for the S&P 500. And that's the best way to get started. And then once you think about that, and if you are ready to think about stock investing, fool.com. If you go to the themotleyfool.com and you look at uh, how to invest in stocks, the link at the top of the page, it kind of there's a couple different articles that really can help you get started thinking about equity investing. But I certainly would start with a with an with a very uh, popular and widely owned index fund to get started. Yeah, and since you mentioned a step by step guide, we do have the 13 steps to investing yep. foolishly on our website. I checked it out. Some of those articles haven't been updated for a yep. few years, so if it mentions anything like the current 401k contribution limit, then just make sure you look for the recent one. But most of the advice there is still pretty solid. Uh, and I like the idea of starting with an index fund if you're just starting out and just doing a little. I totally appreciate the fact that there's obviously some um, issues you and your husband have been burned in the past. Sounds like he doesn't want to take risk. You don't have to put all your money in the stock market. Just start small, but just do it over time. And generally, I think you'll be better off. I, yeah, bro, that's exactly what I was thinking. Having a plan, setting up, thinking about how much you may want to invest, whether it's over um, a few months or 12 months, 36 months. I mean, we're long term investors, and I think saving and investing is, a, is definitely a strategy you want to think about. Uh, but when you actually come to investing, starting with the index fund, I think is the best way to go. Yeah. I remember the first time I bought my first stock and it was so nerve-wracking and scary and you're like putting your the you know your cursor or your arrow over the button and you're like, "Oh, I just need to click click it and I'll have bought this stock." And but once you actually do it, you're like, "Oh, well that wasn't so bad." Do you remember what it was? Uh the first yeah, the first oh, I'm pretty sure the first stock I ever bought was oof, Rackspace. Mm. <laughs> yes. But see, there's a good lesson yes. there. Yeah. Right? No, I absolutely. I learned a good lesson early on, a good cheap lesson. Um, the lesson was that it was the cloud. I've told you this story before. But Diana and I both, we were just like, oh, we should invest in the cloud. Everyone's talking about the cloud. (laughs) The cloud. Get in on the cloud. So we're like, okay, Rackspace, we'll invest in Rackspace. And then the CEO of Rackspace, I think, came to talk at the Fool. Mm. And we were interviewing, and someone was interviewing him in the Foolatorium. And um, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I own this stock. How amazing. And you could see just the lack of enthusiasm that the CEO had because, as he later said, it's very hard to be in a business um, where you charge people for something that Amazon is giving away for yeah. free. And Dan and I were both like, oh, we should maybe <laughs> sell that. this. Yeah. Um, and then Dan and I both being like, Procrastinators did. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about that in an upcoming episode. Yeah. But. Oh, are we? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. The first episode of the year will be. I'm going to touch a lot on procrastination. Oh. And, uh, yeah. 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 So big, anyway, big I'll, listen, I'll listen to that probably in three, if, in three years. Exactly. If you get around to it. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is that nobody's perfect at investing. Yeah. Everyone has their losers. Every, I mean, it's just what happens. Well, and yeah. that's the thing about equity investing. I mean, like, if you get six out of ten right, if you're buying, that, I mean, you're you're an all star in that. Like, that's yeah. that, that's the game you pl- you play, and that it's a lot different than putting your money in a mattress or in a bank account. Like, you do 
open yourself up to a little bit more risk. However, the other side of that is you open yourself up to much more gains over the long term. Right. If you can, if you can, if you can go through the volatility, and that's a big question if you're investing in equities. That's why I like starting with the index fund because the volatility mm-hmm. of those index funds and those ETFs over time tend to be much less than individual stocks. Yes, yeah. yeah. And my, I actually just remembered my other stocks that I bought at the time were Corning and uh, Lululemon, and I think Amazon. Hmm. So it worked. There out. you go. It worked, it worked out, out okay. Okay, that was yeah. ten years ago. All right, next question. Question from Bob. When it comes to tax loss harvesting, can the offsetting gains and losses be in separate accounts? For example, I sold a condo property I've held for 30 years. Can I use the loss in a mutual fund in my wife's Roth IRA to offset some of that gain? So the answer is yes ish and no ish. Oh, this sounds good. So it's fine if the investments are in separate accounts. Mm -hmm. It's fine if you know, you own one of the investments, and your spouse owns the other one. As long as you file your taxes jointly, mm-hmm. um, there are a couple of problems with this example. First of all, um, he's selling the loss in his wife's IRA. You can't take a um, tax. You can't use a loss in an IRA to offset gains. None of that. Anything that goes on within an IRA, whether it's a Roth or traditional, you do not report on your taxes from year to year. Mm-hmm. It's only when you take money out. Um, the other thing, just to point out there, that um, but with real estate, it's a little different. So you mentioned a condo. If that is your resident, you can't take a loss on your own residence, and you don't pay gains on your residence unless it exceeds a home sale exclusion of two hundred fifty thousand if you're single, five hundred thousand if you're married. That said, if you do have gain in some sort of property, you can use a stock that's down or a fund that's down in a taxable account to offset that. If it's a rental property, you can t- use that loss to offset any of the depreciation recapture, huh. which is a little complicated, mm-hmm. but just something to keep in mind. So you're on the right track, but just do not ever don't sell anything within an IRA or a 401k thinking, well, I'll sell this at a loss because I can use that to offset gains. That won't work. Does this sound like maybe talk to a tax expert moment? Yes. Yeah. Yes, for Other sure. Other than you. Other than, well, certainly. <laughs> I mean, like, I would say at least a quarter of our tax questions I first check in with Megan Brinsfield, our resident CPA. And I did on this one because I wasn't sure about the, the condo situation. But yes, that always helps. All right. Next question comes from Russell. When does a portfolio of individual stocks become so large and over-diversified that it starts to mimic the market as a whole and lose its edge? Most of my portfolio is in domestic ETFs, mostly the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF. Um, that kind of sounds like a good recommendation for our person at the top of the show. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yes, but I have a Buffett-esque focus portfolio of about 15 stocks that I'm investing in for fun. My concern is that as I keep adding new companies, I'm either now or soon will be too similar to the S&P 500 or VTI, and that I'll just be mirroring the rest of my portfolio and potentially diluting returns. Please impart some of your vast wisdom with me. I'll just quickly point out that VTI is the symbol for the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, in yep. case people can yeah. Uh, so, so Russell, this is a this is a great problem to have. First of all, you're investing in what we used to call, I think, like index in a few. Yes. Robert, if we would call that, yeah. where you buy you buy a general index and you add add some stocks. Um, from the diversification perspective, there's lots of different opinions on diversification. I don't think he has to worry about trying to be diversified in such a way that he or have the risk of matching the market. Um, 
if he gets to that point, I think that I think that is a good problem to have for him because it depends really on the stocks he's going to own along with the index. So I think the bigger problem is most investors, most individual investors, don't own enough stocks. Uh, we see that all the time from our membership. They buy maybe a couple of stocks, and then they really run the risk of putting too many of their eggs in one basket. So I don't think Russell, you have to be worried about being. Owning too many stocks that you're going to start to run into the diversification issue that matches the index. Now, I will say I own probably close to 50 stocks, and so I don't worry about the diversification perspective. I, I think ultimately uh, an individual investor can own as many as he or she wants to be able to follow, depending on how she wants to use, she or he wants to use those stocks. Is it for learning? Is it because you want to have exposure to a different part of the market, like small cap stocks or international stocks, where maybe your index fund doesn't have that? So, from that perspective, I think owning a greater number of stocks is always a better piece of advice, in my mind, for individual investors than too few. So, continue to add to those stocks. Uh, be aware, though, those stocks, if you are all buying them in one industry, like cloud computing or tech or financials, for example, those do tend to trade in the same direction. So, when one stocks go down, one stock goes down, probably the other stocks will go down as well, too. But overall, I think owning a greater number of stocks is a better piece of advice uh, for individual investors. Yeah, I'll just second what you said about the more the more you own stocks that are different than the total stock market index, the more you're likely to see different types of results. And while the total stock market index, that ETF has over like 3500 stocks. Yeah. But because it's market cap weighted, the vast majority of its assets are in the top 25 to 50 holdings. So you're really talking about US large caps. It's become progressively more tech and growth oriented. Yep. So, if you are concerned about your individual stocks behaving too much like that, the more you sort of skew your individual stocks away from that, the more diversification you have. That's right. The international, small cap, value, stuff yep. like that. Yeah, real estate, for example. Yep. Right. Our next question also comes from a Russ, but it's not the same person. In an effort to maximize an old 401k account from a previous employer, I'm considering turning over my 55000 to a local financial advisor. His fee is 1.5%, which I'm coming to terms with by rationalizing that my managed account should grow by considerably more than 1.5% while in his fiduciary care. So, it's a no-brainer to give this a whirl, right? I'm 47, married with a one-year-old, and we're way behind on saving for retirement. I started a Robinhood account last year and have 3500 invested in 50 stocks and plan to continue to contribute to that by adding to my winners." Well, Russ, I'll point out that the average management fee across the industry is around 1%. So, 1.5% is high. That might be because you have an account that's less than 100000 sometimes it's 200000 People they'll often either a say I'm sorry I only handle accounts that are this big or I'll handle your smaller account but you're going to have to pay more. That might be the situation you're in. Doesn't mean that's your only choice. So there are many of the uh, brokerages or mutual fund com companies like Vanguard and Schwab and Fidelity. They will manage your money for much less than 1.5 percent. There's all the robo advisors. They'll manage your money for less than 1.5 percent. So there are all their alternatives out there. Um, the other thing is just to understand what this advisor is bringing to the table. What is he going to do to get you over that 1.5% hurdle? It's difficult because if if this were a mutual fund, you could look it up on Morningstar and see what the historical returns are. You don't, you can't look up the historical returns of a, an advisor. 
it's possible that this person, ref- this person is a referral from someone you know, and they can attest to that they their extraordinary investment skills. Um, but what is it that this person is bringing to the table that's going to earn that higher fee? Uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, especially if they're going to provide other services. So retirement planning, college planning, tax tips, maybe some estate planning tips. Um, you said you're behind in retirement. Maybe they will have some great solutions for you. Maybe they'll take a look at your 401k that you currently have and not give you advice on it, but gives you some tips and run your numbers and tell you how much you take. If they're providing all these other services, then maybe paying that extra 1.5% is worthwhile. But I do think it's worth having a discussion with him about what he's going to do and determining a fair benchmark and say, like, okay, how do I know in three years that you're earning your keep. Are you going to outperform the S&P 500? Are you going to outperform a 60-40 balanced portfolio? Just so that you both agree on that benchmark. And then I would encourage you to go visit some of these other people that I mentioned, the robo-advisors, the mutual fund companies, just to see what they offer and feel like you might be able to get the same thing for a lot less money. Yeah, I, I, I would certainly talk to him or her about that 1.5% fee. Like Bro said, that's 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 fairly high. Now, maybe it is because of the account balance, but but generally, this is a very competitive space these days, and yeah. fees are only moving in one direction. That's south, maybe unless you're a hedge fund charging now, like 3 and 30 <laughs> or whatever it might be. But generally, those fees are moving uh down. So, that might be open for a little bit of negotiation. Also, be careful to make sure that that is the only fee you may be paying. Like, if, if the, there's going to be trading fees in there or the wrap fees, those tend those add up. And fees are, are prob- at least one of the top three reasons why people underperform the markets over time is because they're paying too many fees, too much trading costs. But of course, now we know trading costs have, have gone essentially to zero. Um, and But too much trading and management fees tend to really eat into returns over time. So, you want to make sure that does not get much higher than that, in my mind. Yeah, I agree. Thanks to Health IQ for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Do you average eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Eat a quality plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. And listening to a podcast that makes you financially fit? You know it! Oh, yeah! Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. What if you could be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? If you're a runner or a cyclist or into CrossFit or just other sporty things, or maybe you eat really well, then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. But these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else, and you must qualify to get a special rate. So, to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash fool to take their proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com slash fool. Money. All I ever want is money. But I never want to work for the money, so I Uh, question or set of questions comes from Megan. I have about 20 years to retirement, and I'm new to understanding how dividend yields can be strategically used in a portfolio. I have a few questions. All right, first one. It seems to me that high dividend securities are slow growers by nature. If you are focusing on getting dividends, do you have to give up strong price growth? Megan, great. Love dividend questions. Mentioned before, been investing in dividends for for many years. Uh, the answer to your question is most likely probably. Um, 
most dividend payers don't come with super high growth that you might see for, from some uh, tech companies like uh, a Facebook or a Shopify, a Twilio, someone like that. That's because those tech companies tend to reinvest their dividends back in the business. But, but it doesn't mean you have to give up growth completely. So there are definitely companies that, when you think about growing dividends, specifically, there's a group of companies called the Dividend Aristocrats. Maybe you've talked about this before. These are companies that have increased their dividend for 25 consecutive years. I mean, this is the cream of the crop when it comes to dividend payers. So, trying to find companies that have dividend growth as well as a little bit of yield is the way to go. But it doesn't mean you have to give up growth completely. There are a lot of great companies: uh, Mastercard, Nike, Visa, Schwab. Um, smaller companies like um, a little company called Hulihan Loki, which I like, which is a little financial company. Marriott International. These are companies that probably grow faster than the S and P 500 in general. Pay a little bit of dividend, and they can increase that dividend over time. So, you don't have to give up growth. Growth completely. Next question. I assume I'm supposed to look for high dividend securities in general. Is that assumption wrong? Are stocks with no dividend yield a capital fool's or a lowercase fool's choice? I would say, Megan, don't let that be the exclusive piece of your research. Um, super high dividend yielding stocks, and again, just to be sure we all know what we're talking about, that's the dividend the company pays out on mostly a yearly basis, a quarterly basis, yearly basis, um, divided by the price of the stock. If the dividend yield is really so high, that often can be a warning sign that investors are concerned about a dividend cut, and you'll see that from time to time. We just saw it. I was researching Pitney Bowes just the other day, and that stock, the dividend yield got to be above 12%, which some investors may be like, ooh, wow, that's great free money. Like, you know, the S&P 500 is yielding, yielding below 2%. So, 12% sounds so much better. But then they ended up cutting cutting the dividend by seventy five percent earlier this oof. year. So yeah, a big oof on that, and the dividend yield collapsed then. So don't let dividend yield be the only piece of research. Other things you want to consider is the dividend growth we mentioned, the payout ratio, which is the percentage of earnings that a company tends to pay out. If that gets to be above say a hundred percent, anything north of eighty percent gets to be a little dangerous. Above a hundred percent means they may have to borrow or that can't sustain that dividend. So high yielding stocks, really high yielding stocks like north of you know, 5, 6, 10% certainly, those ones tend to be a little bit dangerous. So, you don't want to just think about dividend yield exclusively. Consider the other qualities of the, of the business. Is reinvesting the yield always the best choice, or should you take the cash and choose to invest it in high-growth stocks, thus starting with a conservative investment and then betting on riskier stocks with house money? Uh, it really depends on kind of what you're aiming to do. So I do both. I take some of my dividends and I reinvest them in dividend growthing companies like Home Depot, for example, or Pepsi. I reinvest those dividends. Um, some other. Companies, I may take the dividends in cash to have that cash, so I can choose to reinvest it or maybe use it. Maybe I want to use that cash for for certain reasons, um, schooling expenses or other personal expenses. So it's really understanding what you want those dividends to do. You're taxed on them either way. Dividends are taxed at the regular income level on a, on on your income. Uh, so you're taxed whether you reinvest those on a taxable account whether you reinvest them or you take the capital. So, it really depends on kind of what you want that cash to do and what you think you want to own going forward. Do you want to continue owning more, in my case, Home Depot? And the answer is, uh, yes, I did, and I still do, which is why I reinvest those dividends. And the last one, why doesn't Berkshire Hathaway pay dividends when they are sitting on mountains of cash? What's up with that? Yeah, mountains of cash. That's it's probably north of 100 billion They're now. Billions I mean, and it's, billions it's a lot. And that's a very large company, obviously. Uh, Warren Buffett, founder and who runs Berkshire Hathaway, has always said um, 
He prefers to have the cash that his businesses generate so he and his team can reinvest those because they feel they will get a far better return on those, those investments they make than paying out to shareholders at a, um, in a dividend that is then taxed. Dividends are taxed twice in the U.S., taxed at the corporate level, then taxed at the individual level. So he preferred not to pay that dividend. He buys back stock when he believes that Berkshire Hathaway is cheap enough, but primarily he just wants to use the capital, and they generate so much cash to be able to reinvest uh, back into the business uh, rather than having to spit it out to shareholders to reinvest or to to use as they want. So he thinks their capital can be better used with at his hands than at shareholders' hands. All right, let's keep talking dividends with. Chris's question. My question relates to my year-end portfolio cleanup tasks. I usually try to sell a couple of my stocks that have capital losses and no longer seem to have great long-term prospects in order to harvest losses of up to the $3,000 for the annual tax write-off limit. If all other factors are equal, is it better to sell my stocks before their ex-dividend dates, or should I wait and capture the dividend? It seems like the latter option would cause the dividend to be taxed at the ordinary income tax rate and the equal drop in stock price to be a loss at the lower capital gains rate. Are there other factors to take into consideration? Uh, Chris, you're right. So if you if you hold the stock through the ex dividend, you will get the dividend, and you will be taxed on that at the ordinary dividend rate. So um, in theory, the stock price after it pays a dividend, after it goes ex dividend, um, will drop. The stock will drop in price because it's paid the dividend out, and now those shareholders have that. So it's it's supposed to be a, a net net. So really, it depends on whether you want the dividend and you want to be taxed on that, or if you want to just prefer to to not have to pay the dividend. Out of the um, from your ownership of that stock, so it really there's really no. It, it, in theory, it shouldn't really matter. It just depends on kind of what you want to do with that dividend stock, that dividend paying stock. So if you do hold it before the X date, you'll get the dividend and you will be taxed on that. Next question comes from Boone. Before I get to my question. I got on Fool.com to find the Motley Fool Answers email address. It wasn't until I was on the website that I even realized you guys videotape the episodes as well. After listening to hundreds of hours of your podcast, today was the first time I've seen what you look like. The mental image I had of both of you was pretty wrong. Don't know what you do with that, but there you go. <laughs> I think he's saying that we're even better looking I think so. than he yes. thought we were. Yes. Thank you, Boone. Great. We're flattered. <laughs> All right. On to his question. I have five teenage daughters. My oldest will start college next fall, and we've been saving for their college in 529s at two different brokerages. I was playing around with the website at Brokerage One and tried a, quote, dry run of withdrawing funds. Double-checked with Brokerage Two and saw the same thing. I found a couple of things that surprised me. One, my only option to withdraw funds was all or nothing. Is that right? There's way more than one year's worth of college funds in the accounts. Am I supposed to take all the money at once? And two, before they would send me a check, I had to answer a question along the lines of, do you promise this is for qualified expenses for school? After I checked the box, I guess they would mail me the check? Is that all there is to verify I'm not going to blow her college fund on a timeshare in Aruba? I know the threat of an audit is there, but yeah, we're going to Aruba. Mm, yeah, here we go. <laughs> so number one, I'm surprised at that. It shouldn't be a situation where you have to take all the money at once. So if if that's really the way it looks, I would call the company and, and clarify that because I'm in a situation now where I am dispersing money from our 529, the Virginia plan, and I can arrange to have the check sent directly to Virginia mm-hmm. Tech. So I don't even have to get the check. The money will go straight. To um, the college, and most of them, I think, offer that possibility, and you don't have to do it all at once. 
Number two, the money in a 529 is tax-free as long as it's used for qualified higher education expenses. And yes, the, the only thing that you have to worry about is the threat of an audit. So, I do have some of that money going straight to Virginia Tech, but my son bought textbooks of his, with his own account, and I'm just going to have a check sent to me for that and just make sure I have the receipts in case anyone comes and asks. But that's about the only hurdle there is. So, if you, just make sure that you keep the paperwork and enjoy that trip to Aruba. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of. Not really. Maybe. I don't know. All right, next question comes from Charles. What has caused Shopify to tank? Uh, <laughs> it's sweet, it's, short and sweet. It's very relative. I mean, Shopify to tank. Yes, the stock um, hit 400 in late August and it fell back down to 285, but now it's back to 400 again and mm-hmm. all in a relatively short period. So, I mean, this is what stocks, especially stocks that have high growth and perform so well. I mean, Shopify started the year at near $100, some less than 130 So it's had a great run. Um, Ultimately, as a as an equity owner, especially of a business like Shopify, you really want to make sure you're owning this business and, and committing to holding for at least three, if not five years. That's the that, that's the approach you have to take because if 20-30% stock drops are going to scare you out of the stock, then it's going to be um, you're just not going to get the returns of of some of these great businesses that we tend to love to own and follow here at the Motley Fool. If you go over history, really, when you look at stock performance over many years, there, there's not a great stock performer that does not drop 20, 30, 40% over given or even of time. Or even much more. Yeah, even more depending on the market conditions. I mean, we weren't in a, in a 30% drop market condition earlier this year, but we were a year ago. A year ago this December, with stocks fell almost 20%. So, and a lot of our high-growth stocks got hit even worse than that. So, you really have to make sure your temperament can handle that if you're going to own a business like Shopify. All right. Next question comes from Theon. I'm new to the Fool and have a question about Starbucks, which is recommended in Stock Advisor. The recent news lowered earnings guidance, but also announced an accelerated repurchase plan. I saw that as good news, than bad, but the market seems to disagree. Can you help make sense of the situation? Again, in the short term, the market it's a 50-50 in any given year, it's basically in any day, really, it's a 50-50 bet on what the stock goes up or down. And I think um, some uh, of Starbucks' conversation at the conference call and maybe with the earnings performance maybe spook some short-term investors. And again, most trading today in the stock over a short period of time is done by algorithms these days, frankly. Um, long term, though, we still like Starbucks very much. They are buying back a lot of stock. They increase the dividend 14%, continue to grow their comparable store sales by 5%. That might slow down a little bit or maybe globally um, be a little bit slower. But overall, it continues to be one of the leading brands out there and one of our um, high conviction companies. All right, next question comes from Tim. I maxed out my Vanguard Roth IRA early January 2018, and then in the middle of the year, I sold my Amazon position in my normal brokerage account, which increased my gross income to more than $135,000. I need some clarification on the Roth IRA rules. Specifically, one option was to pay the 6% penalty on the excess contribution for 2018 and roll it over to 2019. Does the 6% apply only to the 5500 that was initially contributed, or does it also need to include the capital gains made from the excess contribution. Right. So Tim has encountered something that actually happens rather frequently. So for the Roth IRA, there are income limitations. And once you earn too much, you can no longer contribute to the Roth. Not so for the Roth 401k. There are no income limitations. And I am saying this because I just talked to some fools today who thought there were income limitations on the Roth 401k. None. 
It's with the IRA. But so, Tim, a lot of people, he put the money in thinking, oh, I'm going to be under that limit. Then something happened. He sold his stock. Some people might get a raise, might get married, might get a bonus. Something else happens that drives up in their income. They're like, oh, no, I contributed to a Roth, and I wasn't allowed to. If you fix that before you file your taxes the following year, including um, extensions, you'll be okay. And fixing that means either A, just taking the money out, or B, just recharacterizing it as a traditional. You'll be fine. Now, he's in a different situation because he's beyond that deadline. Um, for any money, it's called an ex- uh, you pay an excise tax of 6% on money you put in an IRA that you weren't supposed to be able to do that, and you pay it every year. Mm. So, it's something you want to fix as soon as possible. What he is doing is saying, like, okay, I wasn't allowed to do it in 2018. I'm going to say instead I did it in 2019. He's going to have to pay that 6% tax on the contribution and on any earnings, but then he's good to go as long as in 2019 he really is allowed to contribute to the Roth. But really, my bottom line piece of advice when anyone in this situation is call the IRA provider because they handle this all the time. Mm-hmm. They know exactly how to fix it, and they're very generally very good at laying out your options and telling you what to do to get it uh, worked out. All right, next question comes from Greg. I own shares of Pepsi and Garden Health. Pepsi has paid steady dividends and has seen capital appreciation, while Garden Health is only yielding capital gains. Assuming that I am not reinvesting dividends in Pepsi but taking the cash, how can I determine the total gains in Pepsi in order to perform an apples to apples comparison with a stock like Garden Health? And further, is there a way to see this in a typical online brokerage report? Uh, Greg, so I own Pepsi myself, and I re- do reinvest a dividend. So um, I, the way that I compare those performance apples and apples for dividends that are reinvested, the simple way is I use I use uh, Yahoo Finance to look at the cost adjusted price. If you that assumes that you're going to reinvest the dividends, and then you can compare the two over a certain time period. But if he's not investing the dividends, so then he's taking that that in cash. I guess the best way to probably think about that is the amount you have invested. And the gains you've seen over Pepsi over the time period and over the Guardian for Guardian Health as well, too, and then adding back the dividends you've actually you've actually gotten on those those shares that you have. So if you add those two up, you should see the gains over time. So if you say it over say a three year period, you add in with the dividends you got back onto your Pepsi shares as if you just kept them as like a return of capital, not necessarily just reinvested. The beauty of the reinvested in dividends is the returns compound and you wouldn't see that if you just take the dividends in cash. Yeah. How do you track your portfolio? Like what do you use to track your performance? Oh, almost all my. So I have. We were talking about brokerage. A very complex Excel spreadsheet. No, no, oh, okay. not not really. Um, okay. I, I've I've kind of do, but but mostly I use my brokerage my brokerage um, account to, to to track the returns of the overall portfolio, mm-hmm. um, as much as um, I do across the three different brokerages that I have investment accounts into. What I don't do is necessarily tie them all together into one sophisticated Excel spreadsheet. I know our friend Ron Gross does that, and I need to, to do that better. But I like to look at the accounts more individually basis. So, like my daughter's account, my 401k or my IRAs, and then my um, individual tax accounts. All right, next question comes from David. Hello, I was looking at Match Group, which um, is the company that gives you Match.com for all our single people out there. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> or just, just single or gear. Just flexible. And, mm-hmm. I noticed their short interest is at 55%. Is that to be considered bullish or bearish? Or should I not even worry about it since I am, by definition, an investor, not a trader, and in it for three to five years? Just like your marriage. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. sorry. Buy the hold. I help. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> 
Sorry. So bad. Let's say I was a trader. Would a 55% float be good or bad, depending on whether I was going to short it myself or buy long now? Apologies to David's partner. David, that was my part. I added that. Interesting question to think about looking at the short ratio. So, just from a definition perspective, this is comparing the number of shares that are sold short of a stock, which is betting that the stock will go down, comparing against either the the number of shares outstanding or the float, which is the shares that are really available for trading in any given period. Um, and then, so that's a, a baseline to try to determine how active the short activity is against any given stock. So something like Match.com at 55% or Match Group at 55% is exceptionally high, very high. Um, typically, if anything for me gets above 5 or 10%, then I start saying, oh, there's a lot of activity that is short against this. Now, it also depends on how much the float is because some companies shares that are controlled by insiders and they don't trade very much since there's no not a whole lot of trading activity if the shares are sold short and you might see this very high short ratio why this is kind of interesting is for what they call short squeezes so this is when a stock uh, does well in a given time period and say the stock goes up in a short amount they have earnings the earnings are really good and there's a lot of buying activity if you are if People are short that stock, and they have to return the shares that they've borrowed. And now there's a scramble to try to get those shares that they have to borrow so they can return them back to the people they borrowed them for. They have to go out and they have to buy those shares back. More and more buying activity starts to run the price up. So you'll see stocks that have very high short ratios. If the stock gets a lot of momentum against them in one day, the stock really starts to drive higher. We saw this a lot in restoration hardware that has a lot of high short ratios, but because they buy back a lot of stock, then the stock performs well. You see these stocks' prices really start to jump up. So it does add a little bit more to the volatility of the stock, but it also just gives me a sense of how much activity out there from people who are bearish on the company, um, how much activity is out there that I might have to um, uh, be fighting against, I guess, if I was buying the stock. So it's something I pay attention to, um, but not necessarily to to drive a decision on whether I'm going to buy or sell the stock. All right. And our last question comes from Matt. I've been working at the same private company for about seven years, and I'm getting the feeling that they are considering selling the company or going public. If they do go public, I worry how that will affect myself and the rest of the employees. Is this something I should worry about? What kinds of things should I be on the lookout for or come to expect? Well, Matt, it's an interesting question. I guess the first thing is I would ask is, do you own shares or do you own stock into the company? That's very interesting if you do. And from a, from a liquidity event, that, that personally you know, kind of involves you. Um, certainly, going public is much different than getting acquired by another company or if you're going if you're going private, I guess, or, mm. or if you're a public company going private. Um, if, if it is going public uh, in, in through an IPO or direct listing, that does really add these different layers of complexity to the way that companies operate. We see this all the time. Companies go from private to public, and they have a lot of scrutiny now on them. It does, I think, change the way that people um, behave inside the company. I've never worked at a publicly traded company working at The Motley Fool for so long in a private firm before that, so I don't have personal experience from that. But I just know talking to other investors and to the other executives at companies that it does change the behavior. And so that, that is something for you to consider whether you want to work at a public company or whether you really want to work at a private company. Personally, for yourself, there does, if, if you do own stock into the company, there is a lot of consequences for what those shares um, will be available for you and for your personal finance situation. That's something for you to consider as well. 
Yeah, just to make clear on that, I mean, it is possible to own shares in a company that's not public. In Correct. fact, we here at The Motley Fool yep. do that. So, um, I mean, it could be good for you financially sure. if it's acquired or it goes public. may not, but there's certainly the, the, the increased scrutiny, and I, I would be nervous about any sort of change in the culture, especially mm-hmm. if you're acquired. Um, could be good. You yeah. could be acquired by a company that provides even better benefits and better healthcare or something like that. But That's right. And if you're acquired by a public company or by a, by a private company, all those kind of situations matter. So I think it is important um, for you to consider the kind of company whether you want to work at. I personally like working at a private company right now. The yeah. right now, right we're not now. going public anytime soon. It is interesting how lately private companies are going public in different ways, right? Like direct mm-hmm. listings rather than so. It, there are. A number of different variables these days when your company does go public. Yeah, it's really it's it's more a lot of these companies are becoming public or seeking uh, an option for liquidity for their for their shareholders or for the, I'm sorry for their employees shareholders and their employees a lot of times because um, they 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 have employees who've been there for a lot of years and they, those employees may need liquidity and for for the company and those employees the only way to do that is uh, by either going public or maybe selling to another company where that company pays the money directly for the shares. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go public, and you're basically selling your shares, and the company gets an influx of cash, right? And and so that would be one of my big questions for the management. Like, what are if we're going public, what are we going to do with all this excess cash? That's right. And that's always a great question that we ask, bro, and we try to determine when a company goes through a, a public filing um, versus a direct listing, which is a little bit different because they, a direct listing, they don't get the Money, the money is not. There's no money that comes into the company. So the mm-hmm. IPO is when you actually go out and issue shares, and the other outside investors pay you um, pay you money for the stock, as well as adds liquidity into the into the market. So, definitely understanding what this does for the both the culture, but also for the operations of the of the business and the purpose of taking that capital. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. That was great fun. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, we come. We come back again. Someday. Of course, I will. If you'll have me again, know, if, 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 if this becomes the least listened podcast, Motley Fool Answers <laughs> podcast of all time, I won't. Uh, I'll be sad. I'll be sad. But um, and if you don't want me back, I won't be no, offended. I mean, not be the case. It will not be. The, well, well, I mean, it, it is airing between well, Christmas and New Year's. It's so, all maybe relative. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. We can adjust. We'll, we'll, we'll have an adjusted listening metric. We can adjust. <laughs> seasonally adjusted. Seasonally, yeah, seasonally adjusted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, as always, The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. All right, let's head to the literal mailbag. Post mailbag. The post mailbag. We got another holiday card from the Smith family. Oh, Look at them. Aren't oh they my beautiful? Gosh. Oh my gosh, those kids are adorable. That just makes that makes both of ours day. <laughs> uh, also, we have Bruce, who sent a card from Cannon Beach. I love Cannon Beach. Over By the, the way, Oregon coast. the what? Smiths put at the end of their postcard, Bonds! Bonds! <laughs> Rebels. Rebels. Uh, oh, Oregon's pretty. Look at that. Isn't that. Have you never been to Cannon Beach? Never. Oregon's, Oregon's one of the like seven states I've never been to. Oh, you should go. It's no. great. Uh, we also got our first card in chocolate from <gasps> Sao Tome and Principe. Um, I wasn't. I wanted to like check how do you pronounce this is kind of short, funny aside. How you pronounce Sao Tome and Principe, right? It's a little island um, right there, kind of off the what is that considered the Horn of Africa? Um, and so I googled how do you pronounce Sao Tome and Principe, and this video came up, 
and it was like a robot voice, and the robot said something like "sao tome" and "prichipi," and I was like, "That can't be right." And so I've decided we're going to do a series of videos where um, we just mispronounce things. Sounds. It'll be like how to pronounce. That would you know, be fun right? And then you just mispronounce stuff. How fun would that be? That's so, so cruel. So much fun. So much fun. Right. Rick's shaking his head. Tome in Principi. I was like, there's no way that's right. <laughs> Mootly Fool answers. Mootly Fool answers. Uh, incorrectly. And we also got a card from PT, who was at a singer-songwriter competition <gasps> in Asheville. Ooh. Um, I love Asheville. Oh, apparently, goodness. he thought that... Um, Someone cheated. Yeah. Uh, and so then, of course, I went down this little bit of a rabbit hole to see <laughs> who was in the singer-songwriter competition and who was winning. And anyway, okay. Um, I also want to say a really big thanks to those of you who left reviews for us on iTunes. Thank you. Um, that includes My Name Was Already Used, Big Stew's Music Review, Our Josh, and Party Often. Thank you to all of you for leaving us reviews. It um, warms, and good reviews for that matter. Uh, it warms our hearts even better. Even better that they're kind words. Um, all right. Well, that's the show. That's our last show of the year, our last show of the decade. Bro, Rick, let's do it all over again in 2020. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. The show is edited annually <laughs> by Rick Engel. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.